Our scripture text this morning is uh, Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament. And so, if you would, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4, and we'll read uh, this final and short chapter of the Old Testament together. The prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Sometimes it happens that one and the same event can lead to vastly different consequences for those who are involved. Sometimes just one event can lead to, if you want to describe it this way, great reversals of fortune, reversals that are to the advantage of some, reversals that are to the disadvantage of others. It was said at the end of World War I that there were some horses that had been used for uh, the British artillery that uh, after serving four years, they were taken back to their stalls and they walked unhesitatingly into the stalls they had once occupied four years before. While at the same time, in the rampant unemployment that followed the wars, there were former colonels who were seen to be hawking vegetables and lieutenants who were seeking anything that would keep them from having to fall back on charity or beg in the streets. It was the same event, the end of a war, but it led to vastly different consequences and to great reversals of fortunes. High-ranking officers were humbled while animals were allowed to return to what they had known before the war. And this is something that we find in, in Scripture as well, this, this theme of, of great reversal. You see it, for instance, in Hannah's song, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where she says, The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. You see it in the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, Luke 1, 51 through 53. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away empty-handed. And we see the same thing here in Malachi chapter 4. Namely that there is a day coming. A day coming that will lead to vastly different consequences for those involved. That day is described as one which burns like a furnace, consuming the arrogant and the evildoers. But for those who feared the name of the Lord, there would be something different. The Son of Righteousness would rise with healing in its wings, and the result would be that those who feared the name of the Lord 
would go forth and skip like calves that were turned loose from the barn. According to verse 3, those who feared the Lord would tread down the wicked, while the wicked would be ashes under the soles of their feet. There was this great reversal that was coming. The day of the Lord was coming. And just like we saw last week in Malachi chapter 3, this coming of the Lord would be good and would have good effects for those who were purified, for those who truly delighted in the Lord. Yet for those who did not fear the Lord, for those with hardened hearts, they would be consumed like chaff and set ablaze. As we heard last week in the words of Malachi 3, 2, who can endure the day of his coming? And we see this same division that we saw last week in Malachi 3. We see it again here in Malachi 4. And so as we consider these six verses of Malachi 4 this morning, we'll do so under three main headings. First of all, the preparation for the day. The preparation for the day. Secondly, the blessing which comes to the righteous. The blessing which comes to the righteous. And then thirdly, the course to be followed in the meantime. We've got the preparation for that day, the blessing that comes to the righteous, and the course to be followed in the meantime. So first of all, the the preparation. In order to understand the day that is prophesied here, this day that is coming, described in verses 1 through 3, I think it might be helpful for us to look at the clue concerning that day that is found down in verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 tell us what the Lord promised to do before the coming of that day. And so if we can get our bearings around verses 5 and 6, then that may help us in understanding the rest of the chapter. So we're told here in verse 5 that the Lord was going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the terrible day of the Lord. And if we look into the, the gospel accounts and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is very clear that this reference to Elijah was a prophecy of John the Baptist. And so Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 13 and 14, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who was to come. And then again, after the transfigurations, the disciples asked Jesus why the scribes said that Elijah must come first. And then we find Jesus' explanation of this in Matthew 17, verses 11 through 13. And we also see that the disciples understood what he was talking about. Uh, This is Matthew 17, beginning verse 11. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then Matthew gives us kind of an explanatory comment. He said, Then the disciples understood he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus tells us that this Elijah who was to come was John the Baptist. And I think it's also worth our consideration what Gabriel uh, said when he described the ministry of John the Baptist when he spoke to, to Zacharias as he announced the birth of John. Luke 1, 16 and 17. Gabriel said, And he will turn... Many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Gabriel says that John was coming before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah and that he was going to be turning the hearts of fathers back to the children. 
which is what we find here in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, where we read, He will restore the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And I think to kind of hone in on that language that Gabriel used there, I think it's helpful to our understanding of Malachi 4. Gabriel said that John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, it's not literally the person of Elijah the Tishbite who is coming back from heaven, as it were, to earth, but rather it is someone coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so there's this distinction, I think, between this figurative or spiritual coming of Elijah in the person of John the Baptist versus a literal coming of Elijah the Tishbite. If we keep this in our minds, this may help to shed some light on that interaction that John the Baptist had with those Jews who had been sent to him by the priests and Levites in Jerusalem in John 1.19 and follow. And they asked John who he was. And among the list of questions they asked him, they asked him if he was Elijah. He said he was not. And so, on the one hand, John the Baptist denies that he is Elijah. On the other hand, Jesus says that he is. What do we do with that? Obviously, Jesus is right, but that doesn't mean that John is wrong. I think that probably what was going on there as John was answering the question given by the Jews, he was probably giving the answer to what they were asking. Given their understanding of Malachi 4 or 5, they were probably asking, probably expecting that Elijah the Tishbite was coming and probably asking him, hey, are you Elijah come back from heaven? And John says, says no. And so I think, I think that's probably what was going on there when John denied that he was Elijah. But the point here is that when Jesus says that John was the Elijah who was to come, he's referring back here to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. In other words, John the Baptist was this one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way before this great and terrible day of the Lord. The disciples said, why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? And Jesus said, to be sure, Elijah does come first. And what did he do? For what purpose did he come? He came to restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, now what, what does this mean, this, this restoration of hearts, fathers to children and children to fathers? Well, to be sure, this is not simply a matter of families getting along. Now, family members getting along with each other is certainly important. This is certainly wonderful. And I think in part, there's an element of that going on here, but this is not a prophecy indicating that John is simply a family counselor. Now, family counselors can be good and helpful, and I in no way denigrate that at all. But what I am saying is that that's not simply the role of John the Baptist. The role of John the Baptist was that of a preacher, preparing the way for Christ, calling the people to repent and believe in the one who was coming after him, namely in Jesus. And though on the one hand, calling people to repent and pointing them to Christ can be a very divisive thing, rip families apart. And Jesus was, was very open about this, that, that he came to bring a sword, to, to divide families, that there will be five in one family, three divided against two, two against three. And so on the one hand, the gospel can be very divisive when all in a family do not believe, yet nevertheless, the gospel is intensely unifying among the people who actually do repent and believe. What could be more unifying than to be in lockstep with your father 
or your son, or your wife, or your daughter, or your husband, your brother, your sister, to be in lockstep agreement about the biggest and most important issues in life. Issues like, where did we come from? Are there rules that govern our existence and behavior as people? If so, what are those rules? Is there a way that we can be reconciled to our Creator for having violated those rules that Almighty God has laid down to govern our existence? If there is a way to be reconciled, then what is that way? If a family can agree on the answers to those questions, then there's going to be some great unity in that family. Family might not agree on everything, but if they can agree on those things, then in some sense, hearts will be turned towards one another because the hearts will be turned towards the Lord by the gospel. I think Matthew Henry described this well when he described the role of John the Baptist by saying, He shall call upon young and old to repent, and shall not labor in vain. For many of the fathers that are going off, and many of the children that are growing up, shall be wrought upon by his ministry, that thus he shall be an instrument to revive and confirm love and unity among relations, and shall bring them closer and bind them faster to each other by bringing and binding them all to their God. In other words, when hearts are directed towards the Lord, then hearts are directed toward one another as well. Now, allow me to speak to this for for just a moment because I know that we all have different experiences with family. Family relationships can be the most rewarding. Family relationships can also be among the most difficult. Fathers, please hear me loud and clear that if you want to be a good father, then you need to be raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is incumbent upon us as fathers to be raising our children. And children, if you value your own well-being, if you value your souls, then listen to your fathers when they try to teach you in the ways of the Lord. And so fathers, you, you need to be leading the way in this. Your sons and daughters need you to be leading the way in this. You can't change their hearts, but you can put the truth out before them in word and in deed and in love. And shame on us as fathers if we're not doing this. And sometimes, unfortunately, in a fallen world, sons are more spiritually mature than fathers. Sometimes sons are converted and fathers are not. And if that happens to be your case, sons, then you don't just write dad off. Love him and seek to, to witness to him in whatever way you can. Because the call of the gospel is calling us to love one another and to point one another toward Christ. It's not only that the hearts of fathers will be directed toward children, but it's also that children be directed toward fathers. And ideally, this happens as fathers lead children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But sometimes children can be the instrument by which fathers can be converted and saved. And, as it turned out, in the case of John the Baptist, many listened to his preaching. Many repented and believed. He did prepare the way for the Lord. But... Sadly, many did not. Had the nation of Israel repented by and large or as a whole, then the Lord would not have come and smitten the land with a curse, right? That's 
Uh, that's verse, verse 6, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. But the problem was, as Luke described it in uh, Luke 7.30, which our brother Jeff read for us, Luke 7.30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. The Lord longed to be gracious to them. The Lord sent them the message of salvation through John. He had been sent to them as a prophet, as one who was even more than a prophet, to show them the way of life. And then shortly after John, the Father sent his only begotten Son to begin his ministry after John had prepared the way. But what happened? The the people rejected God's merciful offer. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. They rejected the ministry and baptism of John, and the nation as a whole rejected the ministry of Jesus Christ as well. The nation as a whole was like those vine growers in the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 21 when they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard. And Jesus asked the question, therefore, when the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Or, to borrow the words of our text in verse 6, he will smite the land with a curse. And indeed, that is what happened. Right? The Romans destroyed Jerusalem about 40 years after Jesus. And Jesus spoke of this in Luke 19, 42 and following, when he said, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The land was smitten because they didn't listen. They did not recognize the time of their visitation. didn't listen to John. They didn't listen to Jesus. John prepared the way. He was the Elijah who was to come. Some listened and some did not. For those who did, their hearts were turned, fathers to children and children to father, all toward one another, all alike towards God. But for those who did not, there was coming, as we see in verse 1, this great day burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. That day is coming which will set them ablaze, says the Lord, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. For the arrogant and evildoers, the day of the Lord was not going to be a day of blessing. It would be like that described in Amos 5, 18 and 19, where the prophet says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? They wanted the day of the Lord, thought this was going to be great. For what purpose will it be to you? He says, it will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home and leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. They claim that they wanted the day of the Lord, but the arrogant and the evildoers would not actually be getting what they expected when that day of the Lord arrived. It would be for them a day of judgment. And I think there is a sense in which these things have been fulfilled in the events following the first coming of Christ, and I think there is a greater fulfillment of these things that is coming. Jesus was very clear that the destruction of Jerusalem was because the nation did not recognize and receive him as the Messiah. And 
The language that he speaks certainly has reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, but the temporal and national judgment that came upon Jerusalem in AD 70 was but a type of the greater judgment that was coming. And that greater judgment is coming when our Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth to judge the living and the dead. All will be raised. All will stand before him. He will separate the sheep from the goats. And what was foreshadowed in AD 70 will be finally fulfilled for all of the arrogant and every evildoer. The day is coming. It's burning like a furnace. Now we've considered the the preparation for that day and and some of the events of that day in as much as John prepared the way and the people, many of them, did not recognize the coming of Christ. But now we come to, to our second point, which is the blessing that comes to the righteous. What was that day to be like for the godly? For the ungodly, it would be a day of judgment. But we see the first part of the description for what this day would be like for the godly there in verse 2. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Now, as we seek to understand verse 2, we need to understand, first of all, to whom this promise is made. And then secondly, what is the content of the promise itself? So first, to whom is this promise made? Well, it is made to those who fear the name of the Lord. To fear the Lord is to revere Him as the Lord God, to truly recognize Him for who He is, and to respond appropriately with reverence and awe and respect, and even an appropriate fear in the sense of terror, knowing, as the book of Hebrews tells us, that our God is a consuming fire, knowing, also as we find in Hebrews 10.31, that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is why Paul can speak in 2 Corinthians 5 of the judgment of God that is coming and immediately afterwards say, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. He looks back and sees the judgment that's coming and he says, therefore, we try to persuade men because we fear God. We recognize that he is the judge, that he's bringing judgment on the ungodly. And so there's this distinction between those who fear the Lord, those who give him the reverence and honor that he is due as the sovereign creator and redeemer, and also those who do not. As we saw last week, Malachi has been continually showing this this dialogue between the people of Judah and the Lord. And as he comes to the end of of Malachi chapter 3, he makes it clear that there is a godly remnant. If you look up just a few verses to to Malachi 3, uh, verses uh, 13 through 15, he describes these, these arrogant people and what they say, and then immediately he contrasts them with those who fear the Lord. If you look down to verse 16 there in Malachi 3, he says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord. And the Lord says of them, They will be mine. And so... For those who fear the Lord, those who reverently trust in Him and submit to Him in obedience, there would be this blessing that would come when the day of the Lord came. What would be that blessing? Well, it is said here to be that the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. The Son of Righteousness. What is this? It is 
none other than a prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of Righteousness. Isaiah of old had prophesied his coming by saying that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, spoke of Christ, Luke 1.78, by saying that the sunrise from on high will visit us. The Apostle John, of course, speaks of our Lord by saying that the true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. Jesus testifies of himself by saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, for these ones who feared the Lord, the Son of Righteousness, the Christ would come. He would would rise there upon the earth and they would see him. And he would come with healing in his wings. Obviously, there were many who were healed of all kinds of diseases during the earthly ministry of our Lord. We uh, we heard from Luke 7 earlier, as, as Jeff was reading, about when that deputation from John showed up. Jesus was right in the act right then of healing people of all kinds of things, casting out demons, healing uh, from blindness, and so on. And these healings were real and important and good. But the healing of these diseases were, were merely the icing on the cake, if we could put it that way, because these physical healings and the miracles that brought them about served to demonstrate that Jesus is who he claimed to be. They serve to point to the fact that he is the Son of God. And they also serve to point to an even deeper reality of Christ's work, namely the healing of our sin-sick souls. Isaiah made the point in Isaiah 1.5 when he said, Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. Jeremiah, likewise, spoke of salvation in terms of healing when he said, Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. So the point is is that the physical healings are but a type and shadow of the even greater healing the healing of our souls. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. Christ brings healing to souls that are overrun with guilt and condemnation. Christ brings healing to those who are on the road to judgment. And what's the result of this? In verse 2, the prophet says, You will go forth and skip about like calves from the stalls. In other words, there's, there's liberty. There's liberation from what bound us. Christ tells all those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and to learn from him, for he is gentle in heart and they will find rest for their souls. And in finding rest, we also find peace, we find freedom. Not that we're free to do whatever we want. We're not free to sin, but we are free from condemnation, we're free from guilt, we're free from bondage to sin, we're free from the tyranny of Satan, free from the tyranny of being afraid of death. And in finding freedom from all of those things through the healing brought by the Son of Righteousness, there is great joy. There's great joy. Paul described the conversion of the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And he said, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's joy that comes as a result of the 
coming of Christ. And Christian joy has been described as, as holy cheerfulness or as an attitude of delight and security and comfort that we have as we trust in God. And of course, this doesn't mean that everything that happens to us is going to make us happy. It doesn't mean that at all. A lot of things happen to us that make us very sad. This is life in a fallen and sinful world. It's easy to have this holy cheerfulness and joy when things are going well for us. But the good news is that even when dark hours come, joy can be ours in Christ. We can be cheerful even in the face of sickness, suffering of all kinds, and even as we face death. And therefore Paul can write from prison, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. We can rejoice in those dark hours with a holy cheerfulness because we have the comfort of being in Christ. We have the comfort of knowing that in all things, outwardly good and outwardly bad things, all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. We have the security of belonging to Christ who holds the keys of death and Hades. And therefore we can be joyful in the Lord even in the worst of times. We can delight ourselves in the Lord even when it seems that we have nothing else to delight in and no one else to turn to. God promised that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us. In light of that, we can, we can still skip about like calves from the stalls because the Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in his wings and those who fear the name of the Lord, those who truly come to him in repentance of faith, can have joy in Christ because of the redemption that he brings to us. And then in verse 3 we read of the, the victory which the Lord gives to those who fear his name. He says, You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. And while there perhaps is a sense in which those words are fulfilled as Christians triumph over the world and the flesh and the devil by subduing fleshly desires and persevering in Christ despite everything that the world and the devil may throw at them, yet there is a greater fulfillment of these words that is yet to come. God's people will be triumphant in the end over the wicked and even over the evil one himself. We have the promise of Romans 16.20 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And what this means is that we as Christ's people will share in the victory which Christ has won over the wicked. And this victory will be fully exhibited and fully on display when Christ comes again in glory. And that second coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead will be analogous to his first coming in this, in that it will be one event with vastly different consequences and outcomes for different people. Just as Christ brought division at his first coming, and his coming resulted in the judgment of the wicked and the blessing for those who fear the name of the Lord, the same will be true when Jesus comes again, when he gives relief to those who are his and deals out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, as Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. What this means then for all of us is that now is the time to fear the Lord. Now is the time to repent of sins. Now is the time to place our trust for eternal salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Now is the time to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist himself preached in Luke 3, 8. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to experience the healing, which is brought by Jesus, the Son of Righteousness. Now is the time to flee the judgment, which is coming because of our sins. 
Now is the time to receive forgiveness and reconciliation to God by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The Son of God was born into the world and given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And praise God, he has done this by going to the cross and rising again for us three days later. So come, one and all, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And if you have more questions about what any of this means, what it means to turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus, you can talk to another Christian that you know here. You can talk to me after the service. We'd love to tell you more about what this means. But sandwiched in between the announcement of this coming day that's described in verses 1 through 3 and the prophecy of John the Baptist's coming before that day in verses 5 and 6, there is a very brief command there in verse 4 about what the people were supposed to do in the meantime. And so this is, this is point number three for us this morning. What to do in the meantime. There's a very simple command there. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. This was, in fact, one of the main purposes for which God had raised up the prophets to call the people back to the law. They had gotten away from it by their idolatry, by their disobedience in one form and another, and so the Lord raised up the prophets to to call the people back. And the Lord through Malachi does this explicitly here. He calls the people to remember the law of Moses, not to remember it just in the sense of acknowledging that, oh, yeah, the law of Moses is back there in the temple somewhere, but to remember it in the sense of embracing it, submitting to it and obeying it, Remember the law of Moses. It's called the law of Moses not because it was his, but because he was the one through whom God gave it to Israel. And in that law were the shadows which were pointing to Christ. There was the sacrificial system which showed a need of a sacrifice to take our place. showed that we deserve to die because of our sins, but it also demonstrated that a substitution could be made, which of course was pointing to Christ's death on the cross as our substitute for us. There were shadows of the priesthood which showed that we had need of a much better priest than Aaron or any of his sons could be. There were the moral commandments in the law which demonstrated the holy character of God, showed us how far short we have fallen of them, and also showed us how to live lives that are pleasing to God. There were the Explicit prophecies in the law of Moses which pointed to the coming of Christ. You could think of, uh, of the book of, of Deuteronomy, how Moses said that the Lord will raise up a prophet like me. Jesus is that prophet. Through Malachi, uh, though with Malachi, the prophetic voices of the old covenant would grow silent. Right At the end of the, end of the prophecy of Malachi, there's this 400-year gap between the Old Testament prophets, and the the rising up of John the Baptist to prepare the way. But God didn't leave his people hanging in suspense in the meantime, as if they should ask, what do we do now? The last prophet of the Old Covenant directed them to the standard which was to guide them until this coming of the day of the Lord. He says, "Remember, remember the law of Moses. And though we as New Covenant believers are not under the law of Moses in the sense that Old Testament Israelites were with all of the ceremonial laws pertaining to sacrifice and ritual and all of the civil laws pertaining to the national life of Israel. Nevertheless, we too have our marching orders as we also await the day of the Lord, as we await the day of Christ's second coming. 
Just think with me for a moment of 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, Peter's been talking about the, the coming of Christ. There's going to be these scoffers who come and say, where's, where's the day of the Lord? It's not here. Ever since our fathers died, everything is going on as it has before. But Peter reminds them that the day of the Lord is coming. The earth is going to be burned up. And then he says this, 2 Peter 3, beginning verse 11. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? Holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be, the, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, since this day of the Lord is out there, since Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead, in the meantime, we ought to be conducting ourselves in holiness and godliness we ought to be diligent to be found in peace, spotless and blameless. How do we do that? We do that by trusting in Christ. We repent and believe because through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Think likewise of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We're supposed to be making disciples. We're supposed to be leading other people to follow Jesus. We're supposed to teach them all that Jesus commanded us. And certainly if we're supposed to teach others what Jesus commanded us, then we're supposed to be obeying what Jesus commanded us ourselves. And if you want to know what Jesus commanded, just read the New Testament. It's, it's here. We see his words explicitly recorded in the Gospels. We see the apostles inspired by the Spirit to write what Christ would have us to know. And so, though I wouldn't want to phrase it Quite as Malachi does, as we await the, the second coming of Christ, Malachi refers them to the law of Moses. He says, remember the law of Moses? I would say, look to the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, rightly understood. This tells us what we're supposed to be doing as we await the coming day of the Lord. In some respects, our position is indeed analogous to that of the people in Malachi. They were waiting the coming of the Lord. They were waiting Christ's first coming. We're waiting the day of Christ's second coming. And these people were not left guessing as to what they ought to do in the meantime. They had instruction, written instruction from the Lord to guide them. And so do we. Praise God. We've got it in a book. And so friends, let's remember the word of God. Let's look to it as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The day of the Lord has come in that Christ has come. The day of the Lord is coming in that Christ will come again. The wicked will be destroyed and the godly will be rescued. So may God grant that we would all pay heed to his word and fear his name. And so be ready for that day when he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the coming of Christ, that indeed the Son of Righteousness has come with healing in his wings. We no, Lord, how desperately we all need that healing. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would help us, that we would come to Christ, to him who is gentle and humble in heart, that we would find rest for our souls, refreshment, encouragement, strengthening. Lord, we pray that we would be those who truly fear your name, that we would revere you for who you are, as the great, sovereign creator, and redeemer. Father, we give praise and we give thanks to you. We ask your help, your blessing 
Help us to cling tightly to the truth of your word as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be those who have loved his appearing. Pray that that day would be a great joy to all of us who are here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.